Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome, Wapham crew, guys, gals, ghouls, friends, fiends, foes, whoever may be listening beyond the omniverse tonight. Secure your tinfoil hats, buckle down tight, and hold on loosely as we soar over the rocky tops of the La Platas on a rocky mountain high. Get sucked into the vortex of the Four Corners and settle down snugly at Mile Marker 420 in colorful Colorado. It is Sunday, December 31st. Monday, January 1st, for those of you across the pond and beyond, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to you, and Happy New Year. Hope you guys are having awesome New Year's Eve. Figured I'd spend some time reading some ghost stories to you, um, perhaps even, let me make sure this is working, sound working, yeah, I just had somebody in here and then they popped out, so I just had to double check that real quick like. But yeah, hopefully, you know, uh, instead of watching, you know, uh, the ball dropping channel or whatnot, 
who knows what they're doing tonight i'm not sure uh they used to drink on cameron and have a lot of fun but um i guess they put the kibosh on that because uh certain things were said or done or whatnot so hopefully they're having fun in new york and they're not freezing their their uh tootsies off so if you're listening to us live right now, you may be listening to us on KPNL Radio, which you can find at KPNL Radio at kpnl-dv.com. You can also find us live on eTalk Radio, which you can find at etalk.tv forward slash radio. If you like to watch as you listen, you may find us on Facebook. Tonight we are being broadcast live on We Are Paradox Media, as well as Four Corners Paranormal Investigations. Um, unfortunately, due to last night's show and medical misinformation, which is BS, um, you know, I wish they'd say something about Fauci and all those other people, uh, who medically misinformed us and has killed a lot of us with these vaccinations that they rushed out so fast. Um, but yeah, you know, they're still on, on that pedestal. So yeah, I don't know how long we're grounded from YouTube for, but I don't know, could be a while, could be inevitably, or whatnot. I know it said that I wasn't allowed to do certain things on there anymore, but it didn't say that my channel would be paused, but yeah, when I tried to add this to the YouTube, it didn't allow it. But go over there anyways, if you would, and give us a like, please follow, and leave any comments, whether good or bad, on any video that you've watched or listened to. If you like to listen in your free time, whether you're working, working it, or working out, Make sure you tune in to us anywhere that you listen to your podcast. We're all over the place. As am I. So tonight we shall be reading this book. It is The World's Most Evil Psychopaths, Horrifying True Life Cases. And there's a lot of hairy, scary, willy-nilly stuff. And I was actually, you know, worried about reading this book on YouTube because um, of their stipulations and everything and using certain words. Um, I'm surprised we weren't kicked off or knocked off before um, due to certain words that you're not supposed to say, but maybe it's because I'm reading a book. If they haven't done that, I'm not I'm not quite sure. I'm just going to pop over to um, Spreaker really quick, make sure everything's going good there. Looks like it's going good, going off without a hitch. So what are your New Year's plans? Mine are to spend the next three hours with you. And then to go hang out with the family, have some pizza. I bought some Domino's pizza earlier. Um, we got some sparkling Welch's juice. One is actually um, a sangria flavor. So I'm excited to try that and see, does it taste like sangria or what? I know, pretty interesting. So the first story that we're going to start with is The Monster of Florence. Oh yeah, and I forgot to mention, this book is by Mr. John Marlowe. He's done a very good job doing his homework on all these cases. I wonder if, you know, when people write books like this, if they uh, end up having nightmares or whatnot. Late in the evening of August 21st, 1968, a Tuscan farmer was awoken by a knock at his door. He opened it to find a young boy who, speaking through tears, informed the man that a stranger had killed his mother and uncle. The boy had been present when the murder had occurred, sleeping in the back seat as the uncle had pulled his car off the road. As he'd begun to make love to the boy's mother, so it was an uncle, I was wondering. <laughs> Ooh, I wonder if it's his dad's brother or something. Creepy. 
gross. And they're doing this in the car with their son in there? That's messed up. <clears throat> the unidentified man had then grabbed the boy and dropped him off at the farmhouse door. Well, that was nice of him, I suppose. The victims that summer night were Antonio La Bianco and Barbalocci. Their bodies were found in La Bianca's Alfa Romera, Rom Alfa Romeo, which was parked in a Florentine cemetery. A promiscuous woman, Loki, made little attempt to hide her extramarital activities, whether from the community or her family. Indeed, her husband, Stefano Mele, had been at home the day before the murder when La Bianco and Carmela Cutrano, another of his wife's lovers, had each paid visits. Under questioning, Mele told police that he believed any one of a number of his wife's lovers had committed the murders. Among those he fingered were three brothers, Francesco, Giovanni, and Salvatore Vinci, who had each shared his wife's bed. Two days after the murder, Mele abruptly abandoned his claims and confessed to killing his wife in La Lobianco with the aid of Salvatore Vinci. Mele provided a store in which he had roamed the town of Lostra searching for his wife and son. In the town square he'd encountered Vinci, who proceeded to criticize Mele for allowing his wife to cheat on him. Together they stopped Lochi and Lobianco. When the couple parked in the graveyard, Millet used Vinci's gun to shoot the couple, then drove off. It was a story full of holes, not the least of which was Millet's failure to mention his son and how it was the boy that had arrived at the farmhouse. Also suspicious was the idea that one of Lochi's lovers would encourage Millet to kill his wife over her adultery. Each day that followed brought a new story and sequence of events. Millet retracted his confession, asserting that it was actually Francesco Vinci who had committed the murders. Nevertheless, it was Millet who went to trial. In 1970, he received a 14-year sentence on the grounds of partial insanity. More bodies. As Millet was serving his fifth year behind bars on 14 September 1974, the bodies of a young couple, 19-year-old Pascal Gentilcor and 18-year-old Stephanie Patini were discovered in the countryside just north of Florence. Gentilcor was seated half-clothed behind the wheel of his father's flat. Patini's naked, mutilated corpse lay spread eagle outside the car. Both victims had been shot several times, though Patini's death had come as a result of one of 96 stab wounds. There were no witnesses, and the suspects, who included a mentally disturbed man who had turned himself in, were quickly dismissed. It seemed that the murders of Gentilcore and Bettini were destined to remain unsolved. On June 6, 1981, investigators were confronted with another mystery when the bodies of another young couple were found off a county country road outside Florence. The body of the male, 30-year-old Giovanni Fulgi was inside his Fiat Ritmo. His throat had been slashed. The corpse of Fulgi's girlfriend, 21-year-old Carmela Denuccio, lay 20 meters away at the bottom of a steep embankment. Like Bettini six years earlier, Denuccio's genitals had been mutilated. 
Autopsies performed on the latest victims indicated that they had both died of several gunshot wounds before their corpses were stabbed. There was, however, a more direct link tying the recent murders to those of Pasquale, Dintacor, and Stephanie Pizzini. A ballistics report indicated that all had been killed by the same gun. A man named Enzo Spalletti, known to be a boyer, was arrested for the murder. The authorities' case was based on nothing more than Spalletti's wife's belief that she had been told of a murder by her husband. Where the heck am I? Before it had been reported by the press. Less than five months later, on October 23rd, 1981, the killer struck again. The victims this time were 26-year-old Stefano Stefano Baldi and his 24-year-old girlfriend, Susanna Camby. They had both been shot and stabbed numerous times. Camby had been mutilated in a manner similar to Carmela Denuccio and Stephanie Pazzini. It was clear that Enzo Spalletti, who had been in prison awaiting trial, was not the murderer. On June 19, 1982, a couple were killed while making love in a park car southwest of Florence. The woman, 20-year-old Antonelli Migliorini, died instantly. Her partner, 22-year-old Paolo Minardi, though injured, managed to attempt a getaway. He was shot several more times, not found till the next morning. Minardi died without ever regaining consciousness. As there had been no mutilation, the authorities theorized that the killer had been unnerved by the near escape. They'd built upon this assumption by planting a story that Minardi had regained consciousness and provided an accurate description of his assailant before dying. Later that afternoon, one of the emergency workers received two calls from a person claiming to be the killer, demanding to know what Minardi had said. A few days later, a member of the police force began to wonder whether the current rush of murders might in some way be linked to the 1968 slaying of Barbara Locci and Antonio Lobianco. Sure enough, a forensics test revealed that the gun used in committing the recent murder was the same one had fired on the two lovers 14 years before. A new theory was formed in which Stefano Millet, who had been in prison for all but most of the recent murders, had had an accomplice. When approached by authorities, Millet refused to cooperate in any investigation. Over a year passed before the killer, now dubbed the Monster of Florence, killed again. These murders, committed on September 9, 1983, were almost certainly a mistake. The victims were Horst Mayer and Hugh Rush Sins, two German boys who were shot to death as they slept in a Volkswagen camper, 30 kilometers south of Florence. It is thought that the murderer mistook one of the victims for a girl because he had long blonde hair. The theory is supported by the fact that there was no mutilation performed on either male. Shortly after the murder of the two German youths, the emergency worker who had been badgered by the killer in June 1982 received another threatening phone call. Again, the speaker demanded to know exactly what it was that Paolo Minardi had said before he died. The troubled police about the call was that the emergency worker had been on holiday in Rimini. 
They questioned how it was that the man claiming to be the killer knew where to track him down. After another period of inactivity lasting a little under a year, on July 29, 1984, the monster killed a couple north of Florence in Vicio di Muguello. The male victim, 21-year-old Claudia Stefanotti, was found half-clothed, shot to death in the backseat of his car. The body of his girlfriend, 18-year-old Pia Rontini, was discovered spread-eagled behind some nearby bushes. Her genitals had been mutilated and the left breast had been completely removed. It was estimated that Rontini had been slashed over a hundred times, like her boyfriend. She had been shot with the same gun used in all the other murders. Beginning in 1982, the monster appeared to be limiting himself to one double homicide in each calendar year. In 1985, he struck on September 8th, murdering a French couple who were camping outside San Cassiano in the Florentine countryside. The pathologist determined that 36-year-old Nadine Moriatz and 24-year-old Jean Michel Kravitschby were very likely making love at the moment of the assault. Moriatz was hit by four bullets and died instantly. Kravitschby was also hit four times, but managed to scramble out of the tent and run 30 meters before being overtaken and stabbed to death. It was determined that the killer then returned to the tent where he removed the vagina and left breast from Moriat's corpse. The next day, the public prosecutor's office received an envelope containing a small cube of flesh taken from the dead woman's left breast. Intentionally or not, it was the final communication from the murderer. The monster of Florence never killed again. Over the next eight years, more than 100,000 people were questioned as the investigation continued. Gradually, attention came to focus on one man, an illiterate farm laborer named Pietro Bacciani. The 68-year-old had had much experience with the law beginning in 1951, when he murdered a traveling salesman who had been caught sleeping with his fiancée. Not only had Bacciani stabbed the man 19 times, he had raped his corpse. The farm laborer had received a sentence of 13 years in prison for the crime. Following his release, Paziani had married and raised a family. He was, however, anything but a good father. Between 1987 and 1991, the patriarch of the family was imprisoned for molesting his two daughters and beating his wife. That's very unfortunate. Among the 100,000 people questioned by the police were sources that alleged that Paziani was a member of a cult that employed female body parts in conducting black masses. On January 17, 1993, nearly a quarter century after the initial murders attributed to the monster of Florence, Paziani was arrested. He was charged with all the murders, save the 1968 double homicide of Barbara Locci and Antonio Lo Bianco, for which Stefano Millet had been found guilty which I don't think he did it. I think he just said it to, you know, save face and pride or whatnot. I don't know, I wouldn't admit to it. Beginning on November 1st, 1994, the trial was a media sensation. Facing a prosecution which had little evidence, Pacciani maintained his innocence. When pronounced guilty and sentenced to 14 terms of life in prison, he left the court proclaiming, 
that he was as innocent as Christ, Christ on the cross. Well, that's interesting. While they didn't believe Apatiani's assertion of innocence, early in the convicted man's incarceration, investigators came to believe that he had not acted alone. Patiani, they believed, was the leader of a gang of murderers. A little way into the second year of Patiani's sentence, on February 13, 1996, an appeals court overturned the verdict due to lack of evidence. The farm laborer was once again a free man. The same could not be said of two of his friends, Giancario Lotti and Mario Vanni, who had just hours earlier been arrested for their participation in the murders. On December 12th, armed with two new evidence, with new evidence against Bacciani, prosecutors convinced the Italian Supreme Court to order a retrial. Things did not look good for the farm laborer. On May 21st, 1997, his friends Lotti and Vanni were convicted of participating in five of the monster's double homicides. Lotti received a 25-year sentence while Vanni was sent away for life. But Pacciani never again appeared in court. On May 21, 1997, the 73-year-old was discovered lying dead on the floor of his home. Although his trousers were around his ankles and his shirt around his neck, the police concluded that he had suffered a heart attack. An autopsy indicated that death had come from a combination of drugs that appeared designed to exasperate a variety of health ailments. Patiani's death is now considered a murder. Hmm. The investigation of the eight murders associated with the monster of Florence did not end with the death of Patiani. In earlier September 2001, evidence sect composed of wealthy and powerful Tuscan families. One theory is that Patiani did the bidding of the sect. If so, this may provide some explanation as to why an illiterate farm laborer had two houses and a $50,000 bank balance at the time of his death. That's interesting. On June 1st, 2006, a retired pharmacist in San Cassiano received a notification letter from Florentine prosecutors in which they alleged that he gave the orders for Paziani, Lotti, and Vanni to carry out the murders, but he has never been formally charged and remains a free man. <clears throat> Hello? Here. Oh, thank it's you. It's a stretch ball. And it looks like an eyeball. Yep. Look at, look at the neck of it. Ew. Thanks, Lily. That's quite disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. So, Pietro Bacciani, a 68-year-old illiterate farm laborer, got 13 years in prison for murdering a traveling salesman who had slept with his fiancée. Not only did Paziani stab the man 19 times, but he also raped the corpse. That is so weird. So here's the picture of him. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. That son of a bee. And then this one is... Mario Bonnie listens to the prosecutors summing up during his trial. The Rise of the Serial Killer As the 20th century entered its final decades, the incident of serial murder dramatically increased, particularly in the United States. In 1984, President Reagan described their perpetrators as repeat killers, and the FBI made the startling announcement that there were approximately 35 such murderers active in the country at any given time. Before Reagan's administration left office, a new term, serial killers, was in common usage. John Wayne Gacy. This guy is sick. John Wayne Gacy devoted a great deal of time and effort to the betterment of his community. He served on the board of the Catholic Interclub Council and was a commanding captain of the Chicago Civil Defense. In his immediate neighborhood, he organized elaborate themed block parties at which he would entertain as Pogo the Clown. Active within the Democratic Party, he once had his photograph taken with future First Lady Rosalind Carter. Gacy hoped that one day he would make a name for himself by running for political office, but as Christmas 1978 approached, he became famous for entirely different reasons. Born in Chicago to Irish parents on St. Patrick's Day, 1942, Casey was the first son in the family. While growing up on the city's north side, he was bullied by his father, the man after whom he had been named, who would accuse him of being a sissy. Despite this, Gacy Jr. looked up to his father with something amounted to hero worship. He seemed entirely capable of turning a blind eye to the old man's alcoholism and violent outbursts. Among John Gacy Jr.'s many complaints was that his namesake was a sickly child. At 11, the young Gacy was hit on the head with a swing. For the next five years, he suffered from recurring blackouts. The kid condition was left undiagnosed until the age of seven or 16 when a blood clot was discovered on his brain. It was later dissolved with the use of medication. The following year, Gacy was hospitalized with a heart ailment, the cause of which was never determined. Though he never once suffered a heart attack, Gacy complained about the pain for the rest of his life. Conscientious and hardworking, as a boy, Gacy had several after-school jobs. Although he wasn't a particularly bad student, he moved from high school to high school before dropping out in his senior year. After graduation, he left home for Las Vegas, where he was certain well-paying jobs awaited. Gacy ended up as a janitor in a funeral home, saving desperately for a return ticket to Chicago. This bitter lesson taught him the value of education. Upon his return, Gacy enrolled in a business college, 
He soon learned he had a talent for sales and before long was manager for a men's clothing store in Springfield, Illinois. Although his health again began to suffer, he became active in a number of civic organizations, including the JCs, Junior Chamber of Commerce, who named him Man of the Year. In September 1964, he married a co-worker, Marilyn Myers. The couple relocated to Waterloo, Iowa, nearly 500 kilometers west of Chicago, where Gacy managed three Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurants owned by his father-in-law. The couple had two children. For a time, it seemed that Gacy was well on his way to establishing himself as one of the pillars of the community. However, rumors began to circulate that he was making sexual advances to his young employees. Yeah. Would you like to read this? Yes. You're welcome. In May 1968, he was arrested after he'd raped one of his workers, a 16-year-old named Mark Miller. The teenager claimed that while visiting the Gacy home a year earlier, he had been tied up and forcibly sodomized. Gacy maintained that members of the Jaycees were framing him and that the sexual encounter had been consensual. As he waited for his case, sounds like somebody's setting off fireworks outside. I really wanted some. I wanted to set some off this year, but, um, yeah, I didn't make it down to New Mexico to buy, so, yeah, definitely fireworks going on out there. I want to see them. As he waited for his case to come to trial, he hired a man named Dwight Anderson to beat up Miller. The victim was taken to a wooded area and sprayed with mace, but managed to escape after breaking Anderson's nose. Miller later, later identified his assailant, who in turn revealed that he had been provided with $310 to perform the beating. In the end, Gacy pled guilty and was handed a 10-year sentence. While he was behind bars, Gacy's wife divorced him. He never saw her or his children again. Equally damaging, his father died, fully aware of the crime of which his son had been convicted. Gacy was a model inmate and, on June 18, 1970, managed to obtain parole after having served only 18 months. He returned to Chicago and lived with his mother. With her help, in 1971, he bought a bungalow in Norwood Park Township, just outside Chicago, and quickly set out to establish himself in the community. So here is a picture of... Mr. Gacy. Sick monster. By autumn, Gacy was no longer under parole. He had had and made many friends in the neighborhood, none of whom were aware of his criminal record. Christmas was spent with a local family whom he had invited to share in the festivities. It may have appeared that Gacy had been reformed, and yet, less than two months into the new year, he was charged with disorderly conduct after having forced a boy at a bus terminal into sexual acts. The case was dismissed when the accuser failed to show at the court proceedings, which is ridiculous. Like, poor guy. I mean, that stuff is very traumatizing. Victims shouldn't have to go to court, but I know you have to be there. On June 1st, 1972, Gacy remarried. His second bride, Carol Hoff, was a divorcee with two daughters. They had known each other since high school. 
Carol was well aware of her husband's past incarceration, but shared in the opinion that he was a reformed man and joined him in his active social life. Together, they helped host and organize street parties, including one event that was attended by over 300 guests. She watched as her husband toured children's wards and hospitals, dressed in a clown costume of his own design. In 1974, Gacy established a painting and decorating business. His employees were invariably teenage boys. He was particularly drawn to those who were fair-haired and well-built. As in Iowa, rumors again began to circulate concerning Gacy and his employees. When Carol Gacy began finding gay pornography in their house, her husband nonchalantly explained that he simply preferred adolescent boys to adult women. The couple were divorced in March 1976. Incredibly, neither criminal record nor rumor prevented Gacy from having political aspirations. He began volunteering for a number of community projects and offered to clean the local offices of the Democratic Party. Though he rose slowly through the ranks, rumors continued to grow concerning his private life. So uh, here's a picture of one of Gacy's paintings that he began to paint on death row. This far from benign image was auctioned after his execution. And I think that's like a self-portrait of him as Pogo the Clown. Creepy. All began to be revealed following the disappearance of a 15-year-old boy named Robert Peist. Peist. On December 12, 1971, Peist had emerged from the pharmacy where he had a part-time job. He told his mother, who had come to pick him up, that he would be right back after speaking with a contractor who was looking to hire him. He never returned. Pice's mother remembered the name of the contractor, and several hours later, a police officer was at Gacy's front door. Gacy told the man that he was unable to leave the house as there had been a recent death in the family, and he had phone calls to make. He later appeared at the police station and provided a statement to the effect that he knew nothing of the disappearance. After a background check revealed that Gacy had once been convicted of sodomy with a minor, a search warrant was issued for his property. Hundreds of objects were removed from Gacy's house and three vehicles were seized. Items were shown to belong to Peist and several other missing boys. An excavation of the crawl space under Gacy's house revealed the remains of 27 boys and young men. Gacy later said that the crawl space had become so crowded that he was forced to dispose of some of his victims' bodies in the De Plain River. Fully aware of what had been discovered at his home, on December 22nd, Gacy confessed to killing at least 30 people. It was clear that he had lost count. He said that many of the victims had been invited to his house. First murder had taken place in January 1972, 18 months after he'd been released from prison. He'd killed for the second time in January 1974 while still living with his second wife after their separation. The murders had taken place with increasing frequency. In most cases, Gacy admitted he would invite boys and young men into his home where he would offer to show them a magic trick using fake handcuffs, which were part of his clown act. The handcuffs would prove to be all too real. Gacy would then chloroform and rape his victim. After many hours of torture, death would come through either strangulation or asphyxiation. 
Most of the victims were young male prostitutes or teenage runaways. But Gacy had also been so reckless as to prey upon boys he'd hired through his own contracting company. At least four boys went missing while in his employ, yet the local police failed to recognize the significance of this commonality. Although some corpses were so badly decomposed that they could not be identified, it is thought that the youngest victim was just less than 10 years old. Nine unidentified corpses were buried under separate headstones bearing the words, We Are Remembered. Gradually, it became apparent that there had been other victims, young men who had not been killed, but had been set free by the murderer. Among these were Jeffrey Ringall, whom Gacy had enticed into his car with the promise of marijuana. Not long after, they began sharing their first joint. Ringall had a chloroform douse cloth shoved in his face and lost consciousness. Ringall spent the rest of the car journey drifting in and out of consciousness, but didn't truly regain his senses until he was in Gacy's home. By this point, Gacy had removed all his clothes and was standing naked in front of him, demonstrating a number of sexual toys. During the next several hours, Ringall was uh, sodomized, tortured, and drugged. He woke the next morning fully clothed in Chicago's Lincoln Park. The next six days were spent in hospital. When reporting the assault, Ringall was told by police that it was doubtful they would ever be able to identify his assailant. Ringall was fortunate in that his story had been believed by the police. Another of Gacy's victims had been raped, urinated on, dumped repeatedly in a bathtub, and forced to play Russian roulette. His captor, who was later identified as Gacy, correctly predicted that the police would not believe the story of the assault. During his trial beginning on February 6, 1980, Gacy attempted to withdraw his confession and plead not guilty by reason of insanity. As if to support the claim, Gacy tried to joke with the jury, saying that he was guilty of nothing more than running a cemetery without a license. He also claimed to suffer from multiple personality disorder and said that an alter ego named Jack was responsible for the murders. On March 13, 1980, Gacy was convicted of 33 murders and sentenced to death. He was transferred to Menard Correctional Center, where he was placed on death row. As he waited through 14 years of appeals, Gacy took up oil painting. Sorry, I just got a message. His favorite subject was portraits of clowns, which he painted and sold at great profit. At a 1994 exhibit at the Tattoo Gallery in Beverly Hills, California, Gacy's portraits sold for as much as $20,000. Gacy was executed on May 10th, 1994 at Stateville Penitentiary in Illinois. When asked whether he had any last words, Gacy is reported to have snarled, kiss my ass. His death by a lethal inject uh, injection was botched. As the execution began, the chemical solidified and the IV tube that led into the condemned man's arm had to be replaced. As he died, Gacy struggled against his bonds. The entire procedure took 18 minutes, nearly four times as long as had been intended. So here's a picture here of um, the crime scene. 
The body count grows as investigators carry another corpse from Gacy's house. He was convicted of 33 murders and sentenced to death, but had to wait 14 years before the penalty could be carried out. Very sad. Those poor boys. Our next serial killer is Mr. Ted Bundy. An intelligent, charming, good-looking law student who already had a degree in psychology, Ted Bundy seemed destined for a brilliant future. Some in the Republican Party saw him as a potential future governor of the state of Washington, and yet he ended up being sentenced to death in the electric chair. Bundy was born on November 24, 1946 at the Elizabeth Lund Home for Unwed Mothers in Burlington, Vermont. The identity of his father has always been a matter of speculation. Bundy's birth certificate is at odds with the name provided by his mother, Louise Cowell. There was some evidence pointing to incest, that Bundy was fathered by his grandfather. As an infant, he was adopted by his grandparents and grew up believing his mother to be his older sister. It wasn't until his university years that Bundy would learn the truth of the relationship. It's kind of sad. His earliest years were spent in Philadelphia, after which he and his sister moved to live with relatives in Tacoma, Washington. The year after their relocation, when he was four, Luis met a Navy veteran named Johnny Culpepper Bundy at a church singles night. Within months, they married, and Johnny adopted his bride's brother. The Bundy family quickly grew to five children. As the eldest, Ted spent much of his free time babysitting. Despite this contact, he remained emotionally detached from the rest of the family, feeling that they were beneath him. Bundy was an excellent student, though an active Methodist, serving as vice president of the Methodist Youth Fellowship. He remained shy and introverted throughout his teenage years. Bundy's participation in the church is also at odds with his criminal activity. He started shoplifting while in high school and progressed to stealing skis and forging lift tickets. He was twice arrested as a juvenile. I'm sorry, but um, I have kind of smirk there because I didn't go to the Methodist church, but my daughter attended uh, daycare there, my eldest, and I also helped to teach um, basically a primary school class there. And um, I just found it funny that on their metal chairs it said Meth Church. I don't know. I found that funny. I don't think I'd put that on there. <laughs> Handsome and articulate, he appeared to be a generous young man. While attending the University of Washington, he gave his time to the Seattle Crisis Clinic on a suicide prevention hotline. One of his co-volunteers, a young Anne Rule, would go on to write The Stranger Beside Me, the finest and most famous biography of the serial killer. In the summer of 1969, Bundy visited Vermont, where he finally learned the truth about his person his parentage. The news served to create a greater distance between himself and the Bundy clan. He returned to the University of Washington and became a psychology major. It was during this year that he met a young divorcee. The two entered into a rela relationship that would last some seven years. 
So here is um, a picture that says, handsome and articulate. Bundy appeared to be a generous young man, but few got a glimpse behind the mask he wore each day. And those that did often regretted it. Starting with petty crime, Bundy worked his way up to Moida. So here's a picture of him and a pretty young lady. And here is a picture of the Methodist Church. My cover's coming off. In 1972, Bundy graduated with honors and soon began working for the Republican Party. During a trip to California in the summer of 1973, he also resumed dating another woman, a former girlfriend from university. Though he continued to date the first woman, he proposed marriage to the second. He ended the engagement after two weeks and later revealed that the engagement had been made so as to hurt his fiancée when rejecting her. Within weeks, he would begin the first of two strings of murderous attacks. Shortly after midnight on January 4th, 1974, Bundy gained access to the basement bedroom of an 18-year-old student at the University of Washington. He took a metal rod from her bed frame, bludgeoned her as she slept, and sexually assaulted her. Discovered by her roommate the next morning, she survived the attack, but suffered permanent brain damage. On the evening of January 31st, he broke into the room of another University of Washington student, 19-year-old Linda Ann Healy. She was knocked unconscious, dressed, wrapped in a bedsheet, and carried away, her body eventually discovered a year later. On March 12th, Bundy kidnapped and murdered Donna Gail Manson, Manson a 19-year-old student at Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington. On April 17th, 18-year-old Suzanne Rancourt disappeared from the campus of Central Washington State College in Ellensburg. Having procured victims from three different Washington State institutions of higher learning, Bundy moved his operation south to Oregon State University in Cavallis, from which he abducted a 22-year-old student named Kathy Parks on May 6th. From June, two more women were abducted by Bundy, never to be never to be seen again. Excuse me. Many of his abductions were performed with the aid of a false plaster cast on his arm. His method was to approach young women and ask them whether they could help him to carry some books or a briefcase. His most audacious, audacious and daring abductions occurred in broad daylight. On July 14th, Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Keenth and Lake Sammamish State Park in Issaquah, Washington. Five women told police that a man with his left arm in a sling called himself Ted and asked whether they could help unload a sailboat from his Volkswagen Beetle. That day, two women went missing, 19-year-old Denise Nusland and 23-year-old Janice Ott. The latter was last seen in his company. Police circulated the descriptions of Ted and his Beetle throughout the Seattle area, receiving thousands of responses. Among those who reported Bundy as a possible suspect were one of his former psychology professors, his girlfriend, and Anne Rule. Their warnings were ignored. By early September, the remains of Bundy's victims began to turn up around the area of Issaquah. By this point, he had already killed two more women and had moved to Utah, where he enrolled in the University of Utah's College of Law. During the first term, he killed a total of four Utah girls, aged 16 and 17, including the daughter of a police chief. He also saw the escape of one of his intended victims, Carol Duronk. Bundy lured her into his car on the pretense that he was a police officer. When he attempted to handcuff and beat her with a crowbar, she fought back and managed to escape, later providing the authorities with an accurate description of Bundy. In a second term, beginning in January 1975, he claimed four more victims. The first three, females in their 20s, were each killed in Colorado. The fourth, a 13-year-old girl named Lynette Culver. Bundy abducted from a school playground in Pocatello, Idaho. He then took her to his room at a nearby Holiday Inn, where she was raped and drowned in the bath. Another young girl, 15-year-old Susan Curtis, was killed during his summer break from law school. On August 16, 1975, Bundy was arrested when he failed to stop for a police officer. In searching his beetle, police discovered an ice pick, a crowbar, handcuffs, and other items that they believed might be burglary tools. Further investigation revealed a more sinister purpose. On March 1, 1976, he was sentenced to 15 years in prison for his kidnapping of Carol Duronk. Authorities in Colorado, meanwhile, were pursuing murder charges and by 1977 had enough evidence to charge him with the murder of a woman who had disappeared while on a ski trip with her fiancé. Brought to the Pitkin County Courthouse in Aspen on June 7, 1977, Bundy was given permission to visit the courthouse library. From there, he managed to escape by jumping from a second-story window. He ran, then strolled through the streets of Aspen, making his way to the top of Aspen Mountain. He became lost and disoriented. Six days later, Bundy came upon a car, which he stole. As he drove back to Aspen, the two patrolmen pulled him over for having dimmed headlights. He was recognized immediately and arrested. He was imprisoned in a jail in nearby Glenwood Springs. I live there. It's such a beautiful place. And I actually worked in Aspen. That was a pretty place too. Where he was to remain until his murder trial. At some point during the months that followed, he somehow acquired $500 and a hacksaw blade. On the evening of December 30th, 1977, 10 days before the trial was scheduled to begin, he managed to escape through a crawl space. 
17 hours passed before Bundy's jailers discovered he'd escaped. Though they didn't know it, by that point their famous prisoner had made it all the way to Chicago. So here's a picture of uh, the 12-year-old Kimberly Leach on her way to high school. After raping and murdering her, he hid her body in an abandoned hog shed. Bundy spent much of the New Year's first week on the road. There's some evidence to suggest that he was considering educational institutions by which he might commit his next assaults. He spent some time at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor and traveled to Atlanta before settling in Tallahassee, Florida on January 8th. There, Bundy managed to support himself through shoplifting and purse snatching. On January 15, 1978, two and a half years after his last murder, Bundy killed again. His victims were 20-year-old Lisa Levy and 21-year-old Margaret Bowman, two Florida State University students at approximately 3 in the morning. Bundy broke into their sorority house and bludgeoned, strangled, and sexually assaulted the two women. Two other members of the sorority were also beaten. Though severely injured, both survived. Eight blocks away, he invaded another house and beat a fifth student. She too survived. On February 9th, Bundy traveled to Lake City, Florida, where he abducted a 12-year-old named Kimberly Leach from her junior high school. After raping and murdering the girl, he hid her body in an abandoned hog shed. Although he returned to Tallahassee three days later, he stole a car and began a journey across the Florida Panhandle. Early on the morning of February 15th, he was stopped by a Pensacola police officer and arrested for driving a stolen vehicle. It wasn't long before he was identified and linked to the sorority girl murders. He received two death sentences, the first for the murders of Lisa Levy and Margaret Bowman, the second for that of Kimberly Leach. During the second trial, Bundy married Carol Ann Boone, a former co-worker, as he was questioning her under oath. A daughter, Tina, was born in October 1982. Bundy spent much of the 1980s fighting his death sentence. However, as the decade was drawing to a close, it appeared all his legal options had been exhausted. Bundy then began to confess to a number of murders, some unknown to the authorities. He promised that more would be revealed if he were given extra time. It was a transparent ploy and did not work. On the morning of January 24, 1989, Bundy was executed. He was strapped to an electric chair, and for nearly two minutes, the electricity was sent through his body. His last words were, I'd like you to give my love to my family and friends. Creeper. On that note, boys and girls, we do have to go to our first music break. On this break, we have the lovely and talented Miss Mia Savage. And on this break, she will be singing Let Me Be Your Home, Your Skeleton, Our New Reality, and Lumerian Crypto. You guys don't go anywhere. We'll be right back after this music break.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's no
Welcome back to We Are Paradox Media's Late Night in the Rockies. Happy New Year's Eve to everyone. Hope you guys are having an awesome time out there tonight. Thanks for hanging out with me. How did it feel so alone? Happy New Year, Art and Trusado. Thank you guys for coming on in there to the chat room and hanging out with me. Sorry to those of you who prefer to listen and watch on YouTube. I'm not sure how long we're going to be out of the loop there. Um, but yeah, whatever. I'm kind of over YouTube and, and their shenanigans. It's redonkerous, I have to say. <sighs> Anyways. So let's carry on with our book that we have been reading. Close it up here really quick. The World's Most Evil Psychopaths, Horrifying True Life Cases by John Mardo. We just got done reading about Mr. Ted Bundy. Now we're moving on to Mr. Clifford Olson. As the media in America focused increasingly on the gruesome acts of psychopaths like Jerry Brudos and Ted Bundy, the situation north of the border seemed markedly different. True, Canada had had its own serial killer, Peter Woodcock, a teenager who had been declared legally insane after murdering three children in the mid-1950s, but his crimes were largely forgotten. Like how? What? Then, on November 17, 1980, Christine Wheeler, a 12-year-old who lived with her mother and father in a suburban Vancouver motel, went missing. At first, there was no suspicion of foul play. Indeed, her parents waited several days before filing a missing persons report. Maybe they thought she ran away or something? I don't know. Let me double check over here, make sure. Make sure the sound's on. It's good. We're good to go. And I couldn't imagine waiting so long to report a missing child. And I know back in the day it used to be like 24 hours, but now it's pretty immediate. And they have, um, what do they call it? Uh, amber alerts and such that you can get on your cell phones and um, stuff. So that's, that's pretty good. And a lot of times they won't even do those unless you have the description of the vehicle. But I think those should be put out no matter what kids need to come home. And there's a lot of trafficking out there these days. It's a really horrible situation. Even then, the police treated the case as that of a runaway. It was only after the discovery of her abandoned bicycle behind a nearby animal hospital that the serious nature of the disappearance became apparent. On Christmas Day, her body was discovered in a dump by a man walking his dog. She'd been raped, strangled with a belt, and stabbed multiple times in the chest and abdomen. Christine Miller's murder was the first in a series of savage, sex-related murders that would lay to rest the idea among some Canadians that the serial killer was an American phenomenon. It definitely isn't. It was some time, though, before the authorities realized that they were dealing with a serial killer. Indeed, after the Wheeler murder, the murderer lay low for five months. On April 16, 1981, he abducted and murdered a 13-year-old girl, Colleen Dagnault. Five days later, he used hammer blows to the head in the murdering of his first male victim, 16-year-old Darren Johnsrud, a Saskatchewan native who was visiting the Vancouver area during his school's Easter break. As experts then believed that serial killers limited their victims to only one gender, Authorities did not initially 
initially link the murder to Darren Johnsrud with those of Christine Wheeler and Colleen Dignold. They did, however, have a suspect in the killings of the two girls, Clifford Olson, and what is certainly the most tragic aspect of the case, the authorities then came upon an even stronger suspect and made him the focus of their investigation. As it turned out, Olson was their man. Son of a milkman and a canary worker, Clifford Olson was born in a downtown Vancouver hospital on New Year's Day, 1940. He spent most of his youth in the suburb of Richmond. A poor student and wasn't long before he began skipping classes and committing petty crimes. He was jailed for the first time at the age of 14. Three years later, he left school for good, getting a job at a racetrack. It didn't last long. At 17, he was convicted of breaking, entering, and theft, and was sentenced to a nearby correctional facility. It would be the first of 83 convictions, ranging from parole violation to armed robbery, before his killing spree began. Olson's first murder, that of Christine Wheeler, coincided with the news of his living girlfriend's pregnancy. The second and third... Sorry guys, I lost you. For some reason, my internet has been freaking wonky today. Do you guys know if there's any solar flares or anything going on out there? Um, but my apologies for that. I'm not sure how long that was down. I looked up and, oh, you kicked me out of the studio and, jeez, oh, Pete. Damn you, CenturyLink. I can't wait till they get that cable stuff going on. I can't remember what it's called. But anyways. Let's continue, shall we? Thanks for hanging in there, Trusado. Alright, so Olsen's first murder, that of Christine Wheeler, coincided with the news of his living girlfriend's pregnancy. I already read that. That day as her boyfriend's mother looked on, um, Sandra Wolf Steiner was picked up by Olsen while hitchhiking. She was never seen again. A month later, a 13-year-old girl vanished after taking the bus to meet a friend. Both mysteries were added to a file that had become known as the case of the missing Lower Mainland children. It was the disappearance of a sixth child on July 2nd that propelled the case onto the national stage. At nine years of age, Simon Partington was on... Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I'm likely to be a child running away. This combined with the photographs of his innocent looking face. 
and descriptions of the Snoopy book he'd had with him when last seen provoked an emotional public response. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police began what would become the largest manhunt in their history. The heightened profile of the case had little effect on the killer, in fact, it may well have stimulated his desire to kill. On July 9th, he was driving with a male companion through the city of New Westminster when he spotted 15-year-old Judy Cosmo, whom he recognized as a McDonald's cashier. Accepting Olson's offer to drive her to nearby Richmond, where she had a job interview, Cosma joined the pair. Along the way, Olson encouraged the girl to drink, then gave her pills, claiming they would help kill the effects of the alcohol. Olson then dropped off his milk companion at a suburban shopping mall and drove out into the country where he raped and killed Cosma. Though they hadn't made contact, by this point Olson was once again in the sights of the authorities. And yet the killing continued beginning on July 31st. Olsen murdered a 15-year-old boy followed by an 18-year-old female German tourist, a 15-year-old girl and a 17-year-old waitress, all within the space of a week. The end of Olsen's killing came when a police surveillance team followed their suspect to Vancouver Island. There they watched as he burgled two Victoria houses, then picked up two young female hitchhikers. The trio headed into the bush, Olsen's driving becoming increasingly erratic. The authorities finally moved in and arrested him for impaired and dangerous driving. In Olsen's rented car, they discovered an address book belonging to Ju uh, Judy Cosma, which it was later claimed he'd used to make threatening phone calls to the get uh, dead girl's friends. What a jerk. So here's a picture of Clifford Olsen, who was born on New Year's Day, 1940. He was jailed at the age of 14, the first of 83 conviction, convictions ranging from parole violation to armed robbery. Doesn't he look like that dude from uh, The Last of Us and um, what is the other one, that Star Wars show? I can't remember what it's called. Ugh, I'm not good with names, but kind of reminded reminds me of that guy. I don't know if it reminds you guys, but yeah, he, he looks very familiar. Olsen was released but remained under surveillance. On August 12th, he was again arrested. Under questioning, he confessed to the murder of Judy Cosma. Though the RCMP officers were convinced that he was involved in other child murders, they had no idea as to the number. Few bodies had been found and several of Olsen's victims were still thought as runaways. It was while Olsen was under questioning that the case took a, con a controversial turn. He offered to lead police to his victims' bodies and to provide a detailed account of each murder. In exchange, he wanted his wife to be given $10,000 to $100,000 per body. The first one will be a freebie, he is reported as having said. What a sicko. The proposal was accepted by the police. Olsen did as he'd promised and the money was delivered. When exposed the following year, the deal was met with public outrage. Why exactly the RCMP paid Olsen can perhaps best be judged by what they had known at the time. The force had a confession for one murder and suspected Olsen of many more, but how many? The right number came as a surprise. Furthermore, only four bodies had been discovered. The money was justified as a small price to pay in order to develop airtight cases and bring closure to the families of the missing children. 
The subsequent trial was swift. After three days, Olson was handed down 11 consecutive life sentences. For his brutal crimes, Olson earned the moniker, the Beast of BC. Several books were written, most focusing not on the brutal murders, but on the controversial deal made with the RCMP. Olson served as an inspiration for John Grinnell, the serial killer, in the 1983 Ian Adams novel, Bad Faith. Reuben Olson wrote a book, Profile of a Serial Killer, The Clifford Olson Story, in which he refers to himself in the third person. It remains unpublished. Good. The Olson took his place in the nation's psyche. He remained out of the news, gone but not forgotten. However, he was never one to turn down the opportunity to call attention to himself. In 1991, he applied for release under Canada's Faint Hope Clause, a section of legislation intended to release those judged truly reformed. Application was turned down. In 2006, having served 25 years of his sentences, he applied for parole and was again turned down. During the uh, hearing, Olson claimed that the three-member panel had no jurisdiction as he'd been granted clemency by the United States government information he had provided concerning the attacks of September 11, 2001. Clifford Olson will be again eligible for parole in 2008. As for Peter Woodcock, Canada's first recorded serial killer on July 31, 1991, after spending 34 years in an Ontario psychiatric facility, he was granted his very first day pass. Within an hour, he murdered a fellow psychiatric inmate with a hatchet. Like, where the heck did he even get a hatchet? What the crack? This is insane. Woodcock was immediately apprehended and returned to the facility where he remains to this very day. So the next one, aka serial killer, is Gary Ridgway. About 200 kilometers south of the Canadian border, less than a three-hour drive from the area where Clifford Olson had committed his murders, is the mouth of Green River. A beautiful, if not exactly important, river. At one time, its main claim to fame would have been as a provider of drinking water for the city of Tacoma. However, in the summer of 1982, it was used for an entirely different purpose, the disposal of bodies. From that point on, the river mouth, appreciated for its fishing and whitewater rafting, would be forever linked to Gary Ridgway, a man dubbed the Green River Killer. I think I've heard of this feller. Gary Leon Ridgway was born on 18 February 1945, or 49, in Salt Lake City, Utah. Hey, that's where my dad was born. The middle child in a family of three boys, he was raised in a working class neighborhood of Seattle, Washington. His mother ruled the household and is known to have been abusive both mentally and physically to her husband. Dang. Ridgway's father drove a city bus near the airport and often complained about the prostitutes who worked along his route. Well, that must have given this young fella some inspiration. Ridgway was a poor student and did not finish high school until he was 20 years old. After graduation, he served in the United States Navy. In 1970, while stationed in San Diego, he met and married his first wife. The marriage was a brief one. Shortly after the wedding, Ridgway was assigned to a six-month tour of duty. 
during which his bride took up with another man. Although she accompanied him back to Seattle after he was discharged from the Navy, they divorced in 1971. After a failed attempt to become a policeman, Ridgway found a painting job customizing new trucks in Bellingham, Washington. Both conscientious and meticulous, he found it was work for which he was well suited. On December 1973, he married for a second time. A son was born within two years. For a time, it seems, Ridgway's second marriage was more stable than had been his first. He developed an intense interest in evangelical Christianity, attempting to save co-workers and neighbors. Though his education never ceased, it did dissipate somewhat as his second marriage began to fail. In July 1980, the couple were divorced. After his second wife left him, Ridgway began frequenting prostitutes, a habit he may have also had in his later teenage years. Within months, he was accused of having tried to choke a prostitute on Seattle's airport strip, where his father had once driven the bus. In early 1982, he was stopped by the police and questioned after having picked up an 18-year-old named Kelly McGinnis. In April of that same year, he was arrested after having attempted to solicit an undercover policewoman in a prostitution steam. That July and August, the bodies of five females aged 16 and 31 were found in the Green River. Most of the victims had been prostitutes. The police quickly realized the deaths were caused by a serial killer. Son, he's got his uh, blowhorn here. Yeah. Go on now. It's not New Year's. Okay, thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye, David Duhutwatu. Apologies. <clears throat> Alright, so the police quickly realized that the deaths were caused by a serial killer. By April 1983, 20 girls and women had vanished. One of the disappeared was a prostitute named Mary Malvar. Her boyfriend had watched as she had gotten into a dark colored truck. Oh, she never was seen again. Sorry, I just had to think really quick because my cousin's cousin, um, so it's relation to her dad, actually disappeared and she had gotten into like a green truck and acted like she knew the person, but she was never seen again. And um, I did some ghost box stuff and stuff like that for it, and pretty sure she's not alive anymore, but she's never been found. Super scary. <sighs> During the late spring and summer of 1983... Oh, wait. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hold on. Hold on a minute. He never saw her again. Quite by chance, a few days later, he spotted the truck, followed it to a house on South 348th Street, and called the police. 
The truck and house belonged to Ridgeway. He was questioned briefly by police. And this truck that she got into, uh, my cousin's cousin, was a dark green, like, older model truck. But this is along, um, the highway of, I think it's called the Highway of Tears or something like that. Like, tons of women go missing on, on this highway. And so, I don't know, this kind of reminds me of her. I feel bad for her son. So during the late spring and summer of 1983, a dozen more women disappeared, including Kelly McGinnis, the prostitute who had been with Ridgeway when he'd been questioned by police the previous year. As both the number of disappeared and the body count continued to increase, the Green River Task Force dedicated to catching the killer was inundated with tips and other offers of assistance. Among the interested was Ted Bundy, who from his prison cell contributed in helping to form a profile of the unknown killer. As he'd been raised in Tacoma, Bundy was very familiar with the areas in which the murders were taking place. That kind of reminds me of Catch Me If You Can, like this guy was super smart. Yeah, sorry uh, Jay, we got kicked off of YouTube because of our show last night. They were pretty quick on that. like. I was worried and kind of kept up at night because of reading these stories from this book, but instead of kicking me off for these stories that include words that you're not supposed to use on YouTube, they kicked me off for last night's show because of medical misinformation because we're talking about COVID. So yeah, I'm not sure how long I'm grounded from YouTube, but I'm sorry, Jay. Uh, that's what happened. I'm getting sick and tired of YouTube, but at the same time, I love to go like wherever I can to get these videos out there. But at the same time, it's a freaking nightmare. YouTube, like what the heck? Like, don't you know by now that the government has been fucking us over with COVID and their freaking presence with it, like their hand in it and all these other things. Like, it's ridiculous. They should get over their freaking COVID misinformation bullshit and allow us to talk freely about it, especially if we have encountered it ourselves, which like I said last night, I had COVID three times. Poor Vern almost freaking died from it. You know, he was in a coma for like two fucking months. Um, if you experience it, you should be able to talk about it. But yeah, I think this is my second strike. Um, not too long ago, they mentioned another medical misinformation sort of thing, but they're like, but we don't think you knew about it. So they allowed me to skip on that one, but this one they really hammered me on. So sorry about that. You're going to have to hang out with us on YouTube. But thanks for being here, Jay. Happy New Year. So yeah, I'll I'll try to let you know um, when we get back on YouTube, but I'm not quite sure. Also, I got something in the mail for you the other day. It's about a recall on your car. I don't know if that'll help. I know your car broke down, and I don't know if it's anything to do with that. Um, but I'll... I'll get it out and send you pictures of it tomorrow. Let me just type really quick because I don't think he's in here. And... And last night's show was epic. I love Lauren Fenton, she's amazing. And we got something special coming up. There's a show going to come out that I'm going to be featured in. And it's going to be quite awesome. Um, I'm so grateful she was on my show. She actually did that because I was on her show. Um, 
See, I hope to have her back sometime in the future. Shall we? Scroll down here. Alrighty then. So one of the numerous persons of interest, Ridgeway was twice given a polygraph test in 1984 and 1986, passing both times. That's because he's a psychopath. And if you're a after police searched his locker at work and studied his timesheets, co-workers ripped Ridgeway, dubbing him Green River Gary. No one gave any serious thought to the notion that he might be the serial killer. It was during this period that Ridgeway married yet again. By all accounts, the marriage appeared to be a happy one. Ridgeway was seen as a devoted husband who was said to treat his wife like a queen. Oh, what a good, nice feller. Treats her nicely, but kills everybody else, right? By 1986, it appeared that the Green River Killer had stopped his activities while bodies were still being found. It was obvious that the victims had been murdered several years earlier. The task force continued, albeit with a lessened staff. In April 1987, they searched Witchway's home, took a DNA sample, and let him be. In 1991, nine years after it had begun its work, the Green River Task Force was reduced to a single person. $15 million had been spent in its efforts to catch the Green River Killer. Whatever it takes, seriously, like, people are pissed off because the last guy got paid for letting people know where the bodies were? Hey, that's okay with me. You know, parents need to know where their kids are and be able to lay them to rest and have that sort of peace of mind, but yeah, people didn't get over that because... That guy didn't get paid, his wife got paid, but at the same time, like, at least they found those children and were able to put them to rest, you know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? The case remained all but dormant for a decade until, in April 2001, a new sheriff chose to step up the investigation. Among the new initiatives was a DNA analysis of the semen found on the bodies of several of the Green River Killer's victims. Using a new testing method in September, a link was made between the semen's DNA with the DNA obtained from Ridgeway in 1987. Now being watched by the police on November 16th, Ridgeway was arrested in another undercover prostitution sting. Three days after appearing in court on the charge, Ridgeway was arrested and charged with the moidas of Marcia Chapman, Cynthia Hines, Opal Mills, and Carol Ann Christensen, four of the women whose bodies had been found with his DNA. On November 5th, 2003, Ridgeway pleaded guilty to the aggravated first-degree murder of 48 women. In doing so, he fulfilled his part of a deal that would spare him the death penalty. Another condition of the agreement was that he would assist in efforts to locate the remains of his victims. Ridgway claimed that all his victims had been killed in and around the Seattle area. The bodies of two victims had been disposed of 250 kilometers to the south in Portland in an attempt to confuse the police. Of the women he confessed to murdering, 44 were killed between 1982 and 1984. 
after which he claimed to have committed only four more murders. Only four more murders, okay? 1996-1997-1990-1998 Other theories put forth the idea that he was involved in the disappearance of some of approximately 60 women who vanished from the streets of Vancouver's downtown east side from the early 1980s through 2002. On 18 December 2003, Ridgway received 48 life sentences with no possibility of parole, an additional life sentence to be served consecutively. He is currently incarcerated at Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla, probably still claiming that the murders were committed for the betterment of society. What a jerk. Look at him here. Green Killer, Green River Killer, Gary Ridgway cries in court as he listens to testimony from relatives of his victims. Devoted husband Ridgway avoided the death penalty by agreeing to help police find the bodies of those who were still missing. If you throw them in the river, how can you help find them? But, yeah, look at that. What a moron. What a jerk. Like, I don't know. There's just something wrong with these people, like, in their heads. Like, why do they do this? Well, you guys might know of this woman. Eileen Warnos. Up the first female serial killer, which is not true. By a lazy media, during the closing years of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st, Eileen Warnos was a media star. Warnos had an unenviable beginning. She was born Eileen Carol Pittman in Rochester, Michigan, on that rarest of days, February 29, 1956. Warnos's parents had married when her mother was just 15 years old. Less than two years into the marriage, her father, Leo Del Pittman, left his wife, Diane, who was pregnant with Eileen. This abandonment was a blessing in disguise, as he would later be convicted as a child molester. Diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic, he spent much of his remaining years in mental hospitals in 1969. Pittman hanged himself in his prison cell, never having met his daughter. Well, she already went through hell with the rest of her family, really. I feel really bad for her. Albeit, like, what she did was wrong, but I feel really bad for her. When she was four years old, Warnos and an older brother, her only sibling, were abandoned by their mother. The children were legally adopted and raised by their Finnish grandparents in Troy, Michigan. Warnos claimed that until the age of 12, she had thought them to be her true parents. She also maintained that as a child, she had been sexually abused by her grandfather and had suffered beatings at the hands of both grandparents. There's Miss Warnos right there. Look at that beautiful smile. My girlfriend, Charlize Theron, did a really good job playing her. She's an amazing, amazing actress. Though she was sexually promiscuous from an early age, Warnos claimed that her brother counted among her many parents is our partner's suspect. In 1970, at the age of 14, she became pregnant. A child, a baby boy born on March 23, 1971, 
was adopted and never knew his birth mother. Four months later, her grandmother died of liver failure, a condition exasperated perhaps by the unwanted pregnancy. Diane Warnos accused her father of having killed her mother. The children were made wards of court. While still in high school, Eileen turned to prostitution. At first, offering sexual favors and return for food, drink, and cigarettes. She soon began to have trouble with the law stemming from incidents related to drinking. At the age of 18, Warnos was first jailed in Jefferson County, Colorado, charged with drunk driving, disorderly conduct, and firing a gun from a moving vehicle. A further charge of failing to appear in court was added after she returned to Michigan. The year in which Warnos entered her 20s, 1976, would prove to be highly eventful. That spring, her grandfather committed suicide through gas inhalation. What the heck? So, like he huffed himself to death or what? That's weird. On 13 July, she was charged with assault after throwing a cue ball at a bartender's head. Four days later, Warnos' brother died of throat cancer leaving her as the beneficiary of his life insurance. She received $10,000 and spent the money within two months. Holy shit, Eileen. What the hell? One of her purchases was a luxury car, which she subsequently wrecked, probably because of her drinking. That September, Warnos hitchhiked to Florida, where she was picked up by a wealthy, retired man named Louis Fell. Though he was 49 years her senior, the two were married before the end of the year. The event was covered on the society page of the local newspaper. Fell bought his new bride a car and jewelry, which was neither peaceful nor enduring. Warnos continued her drinking and fighting in local bars and was soon jailed for assault. As it entered its second month, Fell had the marriage annulled. So that, that assault with the cue ball, like there was actually an assault down here at the Billy Goat Barn and, uh, it was a brother and sister who attacked a couple other people using uh, not just cue balls, but like balls from the pool table. She turned increasingly to crime as a means of support. In 1981, Warnos held up a supermarket in Edgewater, Florida while dressed in a bikini. Could you imagine? Wow. Wow, Eileen. As a result, she spent most of 1982 and 83 in prison. In 1984, she was again incarcerated after having attempted to pass four checks at a bank in Key West. In 1986 alone, Warnos was accused of speeding, grand theft auto, resisting arrest, obstruction, and having attempted to rob a male companion at gunpoint. That summer, while drinking in a Daytona gay bar, she met a 24-year-old motel maid named Ty Moore. The two became lovers later that same evening and were soon living together. Warnos encouraged Moore to quit her job and allow her to support them both through her earnings as a prostitute. Although the romantic and sexual elements of their relationship soon ended, they remained together in a transient lifestyle that took them through Florida. Warnos took to traveling with a concealed pistol, which she made a point of keeping loaded. In 1989, she was finding it increasingly difficult to support herself and more through prostitution. Now 33, she was finding that her market value was diminishing. Years of drinking and drug abuse were taking their toll. That December, Warnos committed her first known murder. The victim was Richard Mallory, 
the 51-year-old owner of the Clearwater Electronics Repair Shop. And this guy I heard was really, really nice, and I feel really bad for him and his family. Though a secretive man, he was known to have gone off on bouts involving drinking and sex. He picked up Warnos and drove into the woods outside of Daytona Beach. Once there, they shared a bottle of vodka, after which Warnos shot him four times and stole the contents of his wallet. Warnos then went home and told Moore what she had done. While hitchhiking in May 1990, she was picked up by a 43-year-old heavy equipment operator named David Spears. Warnos shot Spears six times, then stole his truck, which she later abandoned. On June 6th, she flagged down her next victim, 40-year-old Charles Karskadon. Warnos shot him six times, stole his gun, his money, and his jewelry, and drove off in his car. The next day, she dumped the vehicle and began hitchhiking. Warnos was soon picked up by Peter Seams, a 65-year-old retired merchant seaman who was on his way to visit relatives in Arkansas. A man devoted to his work and Christian outreach, he was traveling with a stack of Bibles. Warnos murdered Seams and stole his car. This time, she chose to keep her victim's vehicle, a reckless decision that would eventually lead to her capture. Yeah, she actually parked outside the hotel they were staying in. Uh, but here's that feller that was her first hitchhiker victim. The one that she told her girlfriend about. And her girlfriend actually um, agreed to narf her out by wearing a wire, I believe. <clears throat> On the 4th of July, while driving with Moore outside Orange Springs, she wrecked Sims's car. Though no other vehicles were involved, the pair made a great scene, swearing and pleading with a witness not to call the police. They attempted to continue their journey, but soon had to abandon the vehicle. After the car was found to belong to Seams, who had long been reported missing, accurate descriptions of Warnos and Moore were sent out nationwide. Warnos killed three more men, the last on 19 November 1990. Just days later, newspapers across Florida ran a story about the killings along with sketches of the two women seen walking away from Symes' stolen car. Warnos and Moore were quickly identified. Sensing that the authorities were closing in, Moore left Warnos while she was out buying alcohol. On January 6, 1991, Warnos was arrested and charged with an old weapons violation. Moore was tracked down to her sister's home in Pittston, Pennsylvania. She would later assist police, allowing them to tape jailhouse phone conversations between herself and Warnos, which were used at trial, and they actually record all phone calls coming from prison and jail, etc., so be careful what you talk about. Fearing that Moore would be implicated in the murders, on 16 January, Warnos confessed, adding that her killings had been in self-defense, as all her victims either, either had raped or had intended to rape her. It wasn't until the following January that Warnos was first put on trial. In the intervening year, she had attracted a great deal of media attention and had even sold the screen rights to her life story. It was a tale she told many times and in many versions. The murders was, were also covered by numerous inconsistent stories. Then too, there were the wild claims, one being that as a prostitute, she had had sex with 250,000 men. In order to have reached this number, she would have had to have sex with an average of 35 different men each and every day, beginning at the age of 15. And yet, this and other improbable statements were passed on by various media outlets without comment. 
On January 27, 1992, she was found guilty of Mallory's murder. At the verdict, she shouted to the jury, I'm innocent. I was raped. I hope you get raped, scumbags of America. That trial that followed would hear several similar, uh, similar courtroom outbursts. In all, she was found guilty of six murders. Although she had confessed to murdering Seams along with the others, she was not charged as no body was ever found. What the heck happened to him, I wonder? On October 9th, 2002, Warnos was executed by lethal injection at Florida State Prison. She became the 10th woman to be put to death in the United States since the reintroduction of the death penalty in 1976. In her final interview, Warnos said that she expected to be taken away by angels in a spaceship. And that's a theory that I've heard from other people. Are angels and other beings like that actually aliens? I don't know. Leave me a comment below and let me know what you think. What do you think? Anyways, on that note, boys and girls, we do have to go to our second music break. Oi. On this break, we have once again Miss Mia Savage with her awesome band, Antidote for Savages. And she will be singing Bury Me in Heaven, Not a Phase, Singing to Your Grave, and the bottom line, you guys don't go anywhere we'll be right back after this music break Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back, guys, gals, and ghouls. Just getting our sound set back up. So for the third hour, as per usual, for story time with me, Tessa TNT, we are going to watch a creepy video together. And this one is going to be the top 20 creepiest videos, I believe. Top scariest TikTok ghost videos of the year. And this is by Nuke's top five. Generally, he does five, but this is the top 20. So let me go ahead and share the screen really quick. Share screen. Yes, invokes. All right, you guys ready? Here we go. A lot of these we have seen before. I think I got um, a few videos into it, but I didn't complete it, so... Gonna be watching this together, watching the creepiest top 10 or top 20 TikToks from Nukes. And he's got an awesome channel. I hope this year goes better for him than uh, the last several years because I know he's been going through some difficult times. The top 20 scariest TikTok ghost videos of the year. TikTok user DarkSecret37 is a mother from the Philippines currently living in Japan with her two sons. One evening in the spring when the Sakura trees are in full bloom, the two boys make a video with one of their friends filming. What happens next 
is truly bizarre. What the heck is it? Did you see it? A hand wraps around one of the boy's legs. Whoa. The guy who's recording is shocked and hurries over to inspect the area around the two boys. But there's What nothing the and no one there. Ew. Some Japanese TikTok commenters believe that long like, ago someone was me. buried on the like, spot where the Sakura that? tree now stands. And that the restless spirit tried to reach out to the children, literally. Reach But out what and touch do you them. think this creepy hand could be? Is it real or just an elaborate hoax? No, it looks you real decide. Ugh. Caught on camera. TikTok user Summer, who is a mother of two, lives in a small house in an old town in rural Georgia. Late one night, Summer takes her phone out to record a quick video in her backyard. But she immediately notices something that is absolutely unnerving. Y'all, I am in my yard. Watch my face. Ew. This is not an app doing this. This is my yard. The church is behind me. Watch my face. Yeah. Church, you can see straight through me. I kid you not. Look at this. Whoa. On camera, That's Summer's intense. face seems to twist and distort into something unrecognizable as she simply moves around in her own backyard. Summer says that she is deeply worried that the strange old church across the street might be the cause of the creepy occurrence. She attempts to find information about the history of the old church, but she hits a dead end and is left with no answers. So did Summer catch a bizarre paranormal visual disturbance on camera? Or just what is going on here? I don't know. Not only like can you see the church behind her, but her face looks freaky. Meanwhile, on TikTok, More than 150 years old, the Anson Call House is known for its ghost stories. A family that lived here for close to 20 years says there's no question this place was haunted. On Halloween night, Paranormal Investigation Team Paranosis hosts a live event on their TikTok page as they investigate the allegedly haunted Anson Call House in Bountiful, Utah. The historic home was built in 1859 and was the home of Mormon pioneer Anson Call and his five wives. It is said that Anson was a cruel man and would lock his wives in the basement if they did not obey him. He eventually passed away inside the home. 84 years later, it is said that Ted Bundy kidnapped and held a woman in the Anson Call home before taking her life. Uh, Lead investigator Bennett Rain and her team are broadcasting live outside him. the house when suddenly they all see something absolutely terrifying. What is What? It? There's like a knock on the sound of like that. Knock on a window or something. I'm done. I can't. Don't chicken out. Freaking, that's where it was trying to jerk. Oh, What? Look at it. Look at it. Oh, it is the freaking ceiling. Holy shnikes. 
What the crack is that? I heard someone talking. There's some girls out in the front. Okay, that's the freaking the ladder, ceiling. What the freaking. I don't. I don't know. What? Was, what? There was a thing like smashing up against the glass. Yeah, it was a ladder, it looked like. Uh, was that in the front? Was that the front of the freaking house? What was that? The window. It's coming from inside. It hit the Somebody turn the light back on. I That's been see. happening the whole time. You were yeah. Somebody's been banging on the window and the door. We got it on video too. <laughs> okay. I think I'm done. I need to get. <sighs> what the hell? Can't take the heat. Stay out of the kitchen, sister. Is that gonna break the? I think you're in the wrong field, man. Yeah, I'm with everybody else. Give the phone to somebody else that's gonna stay and look at this stuff. Like, we want to see what's going on. Holy shnikes. Whatever's in there is pissed. I think. Okay, that's the freaking. I'm done. Okay. We gotta go in. You're gonna go in? Yeah, go in. Why would you go in when the freaking house is falling apart? The remains of a bed frame fly up towards the ceiling. The shocked it's investigators quickly head inside to, to investigate. This is, I think this is where the banging was coming from. This is for sure where, look. Look at that. Wow. That's what I saw flying around. I saw that in the what window. That is a bed frame. It looked like a, a ladder. Now, this terrifying event was all captured live, and fans of the Paranosis team shared their recordings of the investigation on TikTok. What makes the footage even more compelling is that paranormal fan Ashley came along on the investigation, and she too captured chilling footage of the Anson Call home. Oh my gosh. No. Oh my gosh. There's the neighbor. There's the neighbor. <laughs> the neighbors oh coming over like, what the hell are you guys doing? Do you guys see stuff a lot? Like, Not really. Yeah. Here's I got the, the chills in just now. That's crazy. Nah, no, 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 no. If I live, like, my bedroom is like right on this side, on this side right here. Yeah. Oh. Oh. I want to go there. <gasps> Oh yeah. my god. Yeah, glass. It's probably why all those windows yeah, are the neighbor came up. over and was like, Holy oh, shit. are there people in there? They're like, someone's you knocking can't... on our, and I was like, no, like, I think it might be the vibration from this. The kid that came up to us, he lives next door, and he was saying that um, he never sees anything, but he hears stuff all the time, and his window to his bedroom was right next to the house and he said he hears stuff all the time that's why he came out running but they did say the neighbors on the right hand side like the opposite side of him they always see women walking around upstairs where a lot of that banging was happening so 
No thanks. Now with so many witnesses to these paranormal events, it makes you wonder whether the Anson Call home might be truly haunted. And someone or something from the other side was banging on the doors and windows in an I would attempt say it is. to get out. But as uh-huh. always, I leave that to you to decide. Before we move on to the next video, if you see anything that you think should be included in the top five, contact us at nukestop5 at gmail.com. Child's Play. Marika DeVitt from the Netherlands posts on TikTok that she is worried about her youngest son. Two-year-old Mateo is playing in his room upstairs when Marika hears the boy yelling. She hurries upstairs to check on him, but everything seems fine. But when she looks at her security footage to see what the problem was, she is shocked. I think I was listening to it. Did you see that little orb thing going across the ground? We just gave that same exact carpet to our grandson. He loves cars. So did somebody just turn the... Whoa. What? It's time to move. Get the hell out of Dodge. Mateo appears to be looking at and even arguing with someone or something that we can't see. Then the two-year-old seems to be pushed backwards onto the floor. Now, Marika says that Mateo is fine and was completely unharmed. But... This is where the story takes a very strange turn. Well, he's rubbing his head. You see, Marika like, says that she was originally pregnant with triplets, but sadly, the other two fetuses failed to develop, leaving um, only little Mateo. Marika believes Mateo that Mateo might be visited him. by the spirits of his unborn siblings. But Jeez. what do you think happened to little Mateo? Let me know. The demon down the hall. Supernatural investigator Cody Aaron says in his YouTube and TikTok videos that he doesn't believe that ghosts are real, or at least that they aren't the lingering spirits of humans. Instead, he believes that all paranormal experiences are actually demonic in nature. Cody says that that he has successfully helped troubled families struggling with demonic presences for years. So when a family member reaches out to Cody about the terrifying activity occurring in their office building... The concerned investigator doesn't hesitate to offer a helping hand. But what he encounters in this office building even takes him by surprise. Cody records as he explores the creepy empty office space at night. What happens next is downright chilling. Okay, you guys. So uh, this is the door that moves on its own. And that's the chair that moves on its own. And uh, I'm just... Tired, you know, there's absolutely nothing here this time. I, I've not seen anything. Uh, it's 9.46, and usually everything happens by this time, but nothing's going on. There was way more people than what's usually here today, so I kind of guess maybe that's what it is, and I'm just going to call it a day. Uh, I'll start again tomorrow maybe and we'll see what okay so uh 
I'm the only one here right now, and the door just closed. No, you're not. On its own. Uh. Did you see it? Cody is completely unaware of what appears to be a small girl standing right behind him. When he walks into the room the figure appeared in, a door behind him slams shut. After reviewing his spooky footage, the investigator decides to return for another night. And it did not go well. Okay, so I'm here by myself. All of these green lights means that there's no motion, right? So it turns red, there's motion? Oh. What in the world is that? That is insane. Is that her I have never seen something like this. This is directly beside me in the next room. Yeah, it's giving me chills. Did you see that? It disappeared. What in mm-hmm. the world? I'd say. Okay. I, I'm going over. I I have to see what this is. Go on, bring her some cookies. See, and look. Here is the motion detection okay, for me so in this room. There I am on the screen. There's no motion detection. Look, look, it's moving. And there's no motion detection right there. That is nuts. Look at that. That's weird. Let's do it. Go on. Don't be scared. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to need a shot for this. I'm not going to do this by myself. Cody is shocked when suddenly a loud voice yells, Leave. So could it be that the office building is haunted by a demonic presence? Or could it all yeah, it just be like a girl. It an looks elaborate like a hoax? You decide. Her head's too big to be You can a check girl out more paranormal moments over on Cody Aaron's TikTok page and YouTube channel. Let's say the height is of a girl, but TikTok I think user she's like Lacey Nicole is a theater teacher at Sarasota High School in Florida. Lacey says that there have always been stories about the ghost of, quote, Shannon a Victorian woman who is said to haunt the high school's theater. Back in 2007, during a high school production of Beauty and the Beast, many believed that Shannon the Ghost made a very unexpected appearance, and it was all captured on camera. Romeo and Juliet, perhaps? That's what it looks like. Unexplained apparition of a woman in a flowing white dress can be seen floating Ugh. 8 to 10 feet above the stage. Now, it should be noted that this was in no way a part of the play. 
So could this be the spirit of Shannon, the Victorian-era ghost that haunts the theater? Let me know what you think. scalp is like tingling. The road less traveled. Tikal Guzorifki from Bengkulu, Indonesia says that he was returning from a quick trip to pick up some items at the local convenience store. But on his way back home, he has a terrifying encounter. Okay guys, gue dari baru dari Indomaret dan gue habis belanja di Indomaret. Dan sekarang waktu mau balik ke kos dan di ujung itu kayak ada orang Orang atau apa gue gak tahu ya guys Dan ini cuma jalan satu-satunya untuk ke kos gue gitu Oke kita deketin aja ya okay? Pelan-pelan Ya, go for it Ram at it Let's go, let's go Ini orang atau orang ya I don't know if it's person or what he says What the hell Ugh <laughs> That is so creepy. Now it's gone. Oh, what the hell? Uh, I was about to say, like, I would go knock on the door and be like, hey, I think uh, your child is out here. Like, what the hell? Oh, it's probably clean drawn to your back seems or something. to stand motionless on the side of the road. Rifki is freaked out, and since this is his only way home, he decides to just run past the bizarre woman. But when he turns to look back, she has disappeared. The chilling figure appears to be a woman in a dress with her hair covering her face. Rifki uh-huh. is uncertain of what he has just witnessed, and wonders if he captured something paranormal. Is so is this creepy. a real ghost caught on camera, or just someone acting really strange? I leave it up to you to decide. The Casper Mountain Crawler. TikTok user Isaiah Harris and his cousin Brock are out on a hiking trip on Casper Mountain in Wyoming. In the middle of the night, as they are crossing a bridge, they start to hear strange groaning noises that seem to be coming from underneath the bridge. Isaiah pulls out his phone and starts to record as they go to investigate. What happens next? What's up, Adrian? Terrifying. Good to see ya, brother. Me and my cousin took a bridge. hike in the middle of the night. That means that we're close. And what we found was the most terrifying the thing anymore, I've but... ever witnessed. Dude. Happy New Year's Eve. Did you hear that? Enjoy some creepy freaking videos. You didn't hear that. There's something under there. Go check it out. Let's go. Bro. Don't be scared. Dude, please don't go down there. <laughs> oh my gosh. Dude, hold on. Okay, so I have to just say, like, there was a video that I watched, I think a few years ago, and it still sticks with me, but um, I don't know if you guys have seen it. I think it was in New York or somewhere like that. It's a bridge, and then you see this thing, like, underneath it, like, crawling upside down under the bridge. Like, that was freaky AF. Um, but let's continue. And uh, just so you guys know, this is Noob's Top 5. If you want to watch this video, those of you that are listening, um, Top 20 Scariest TikTok Ghost Videos of the Year, 
um we're actually going to go a little over as far as uh everywhere else on facebook and uh twitch as i said we're grounded from youtube for a little bit but um it's because of that epic show last night you know they didn't like what we said about our our experiences with covid etc but um yeah i want to see what happens hold on let me go first let me go first you don't want him to go but then you want to go first like what the crap dude some bizarre pale humanoid shape can be seen lurking in the darkness of the oh. sewer tunnel the two right. hikers just make a run for it isaiah posted his spooky experience to tiktok and the video instantly went viral but many viewers were skeptical about the strange sudden cut at the end of the video so isaiah posted an update to explain so let me just explain something. I actually film on three different apps at a time to film my videos. Last night, I was trying to film everything on Snapchat. So whenever I recorded, whatever I recorded, um, I wasn't gonna just sit there and record it because I was running for my life, okay? And I'm not trying to be funny about this. Um, literally, no, seriously, run for your life. Like, I mean, opened his door mid-drive and vomited. I don't know if it was because I was genuinely what? terrified or if it was because I was running so much, but I, yeah, I, I did. But I did manage to screenshot what was under that bridge and enhance it for you guys. And I'll, I'll show you that. Yeah, um, let me just tell you, I've never break, dude. been more terrified my entire Ugh. life i can't even look at this picture right now for you guys saying that it was like a friend or like somebody it's else really down there it may have been oh dance with that right I, I heard that theory but i do not know what he would have been doing down there butt naked maybe taking a bath but the sounds and everything <laughs> about it just did not sit right with me now after many requests or some might his, say uh, theirs the from his viewers Isaiah and his cousin Brock decide to go back to Casper Mountain and spend the entire night camping out in the spooky woods. So we're doing it. We got the four-wheeler in the back, tents, and a hammock that I brought. <laughs> so we're gonna spend the entire oh, night to try to find whatever it was that we saw last night. Um, we're up on the mountain okay, where we did so. see it, kind of close by. There was You're a gonna go camp. Kind of more down the mountain, but we're gonna try Next and to find that. it tonight. We're gonna be up all night. What the frack? No sleep. All right, guys, we're here. Um, we're about to unload yeah, the four wheeler, but have some fun. Oh, no, kind of just camp out for a little bit. We got our sight, and yeah, forgot your axe. This is how we do it down here in the Wyoming. Oh yeah, look at that break. Yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. Okay, that's actually kind of creepy. Look, hope he doesn't jump out and scare shit, me. pulling that shit, dude. Brock, please don't scare me. Don't do it. Oh, my goodness. So, he's got this terrible lighting. Oh, my goodness. But we're literally trying to land the force real quick. We're just walking back right now. And, mm -hmm. like, legit, I think we're lost because I don't oh. have any idea where we're at. Do you know where we are? Don't fucking do it. What the fuck, dude? No. Dude. Oh, hell no. He's all winkied. He's been smoking the mare with JJ's. Okay, y'all, so we're back at camp. We didn't really get anything. We've been out here since, like, what? We started looking at about 10, and it's already, like, 2.30. Did you camp Sorry, out there, Adrian? Maybe we can come back up here and film another one, but I don't know. Other than some creepy footsteps, Isaiah and Brock don't really capture much of anything that night. Or at least that's what they thought. Because oh. did you see it? You know where we are? No, I didn't, but I know you're going to show me, Nuke. Please show me. 
côté. De... Oh hell non. Spooky. Spooky. Ah. Right after they hear footsteps, someone or something can be seen running through the trees, hiding in the dark. So Just Isaiah like and many of his viewers believe that some oh. kind of strange creature is living on Casper Mountain. Some even believe this thing to be a skinwalker or a rake. But who or what do you think this is? Let me know down in the comments. Through the It's looking glass. TikTok user Kaylin Moore from Los Angeles, California claims that an old mirror in her home sometimes shows things that just aren't there. So this is an old mirror that I upcycled and I swear that sometimes you can see stuff in the background of the mirror that isn't actually there in real life. So I'm just gonna do a couple back and forths, but I'm curious to see if anyone sees anything that maybe I didn't catch. So here we go, here's the mirror. Okay, so that's the background. I like the creepy music. Once again, my apartment. Did you see it? As Kaylin's no. looking in the mirror, something can be seen oh, sitting no. on the couch right behind her. What the frack? But when she turns around, it's gone. Whatever it is, uh, it seems to uh. only be visible in the mirror. Now, whether it's real or just another elaborate TikTok hoax, as always, I leave it up to you to decide. Monique Chacon is spending a fun day with her son at a park in California when suddenly the little boy begins to act very bizarre. Oh my goodness, he just dug up a phone. Isn't that creepy? Out of nowhere, the boy just suddenly seems to stop and stare at someone trap. or something that Something's we can't see. Then, without a moment's hesitation, he drops to the ground and starts yeah, digging it. furiously with his hands no, and finds a random phone from underneath the heavy pile of leaves. After Holy watching shmikes. the footage back later, Monique yeah, believes like that something supernatural might have instructed her son him, to find that like, phone. Right there. Hi guys, dug it up. I'm exactly where it was. Update on like, what happened to the phone. Like, well, I threw it away. I didn't think anything at the time of when I threw it away that I shouldn't have until I watched the video. Um, after like watching the video, it didn't why sit right with me. And then magically it kind of, right um, exactly where the phone's at. Actually. Yeah. But, uh, His mom saying it there really is no story time. Yeah, us too. Yeah, like, the phone was broken. Gross, seriously. The face was cracked. There was a battery on top of the face, like, in the front of the face. But it was broken. So I threw it away. Put your house shoes. That's Both it. There's really no story time. He just played and um, I kept recording right him. So that's right. what I Come do. On, you can join us. I record all my kids when they're playing baseball, football at the park. 
I'm that mom. It's that records every yeah. minute and second of their lives. Let me see if I can get this to work so um, you can but that's So, unfortunately, Monique yeah, threw the phone away, leaving us all to wonder just what was on that broken phone. Now, I have to say that this is one of the strangest videos I've ever seen. They but can, they what can do see you think? Did a spirit tell the little boy to find the phone? Or just yeah, a what spirit is going on here? You tell me. A spirit told him. I'm telling you. Newburn Haunting. That's what happened. Sam Aldridge, his wife, and two young children live in a Lily. beautiful home in Newburn, North Carolina that was on, built in the late 1950s. Watch, watch. Although the home is charming and spacious, <laughs> Sam says that the property's <laughs> history is OG Daddy not Dark. good. One of the previous owners passed away in the upstairs master bedroom, and the remains of two unidentified individuals were found buried in the backyard. Cause of death, unknown. Sam and his wife have both witnessed creepy unexplained activity in the house, and they believe their home might be haunted. Even their family dog, Loki, seems very disturbed by what's going on. He has no shot collar, no... Shot collar at all. In fact, no I'm gonna collar. go ahead and take this off Just so y'all know that there's nothing There come on, bud. Hey, it's okay. It's okay, buddy <gasps> Dog is not having it Tail down Keep messing with that till it turns white like move it back and forth and stuff and oh. when the light turns white I posted it pull it out immediately put steps in the attic as he completely freezes up like he's listening oh it turned white it should pop on here in See, a second me and him both heard that yeah, he See, did. now he's gonna run and leave me up here like a douchebag He's gonna run up here like a douchebag, he said. Straight up. Sam says that not only does the house have an odd history, but an odd layout as well. In particular, there is a strange door upstairs that seems to lead nowhere and has no stairs leading up to it. In a video, as Sam explains where the door is located, he captures something downright creepy. You can kind of see just how high up that door actually yeah, is if you're on the bottom floor. Yeah, ghost box. Uh, yeah, you're looking at 10 plus 8. You're looking at least 18 feet from your feet coming down. Why the f***? A strange shadow figure can be seen and two different voices can be heard seemingly speaking to Sam. If you're on the bottom floor, bottom floor, bottom floor. Sam has no idea what he just captured and simply explains that the area behind the door is attic storage space. So, one night Sam begins to hear strange sounds throughout his house. He hits record on his phone and goes to investigate. And that's when he sees something that shocks him to his core. It's making noise, it's making noise. No, turn white. You know when it connects. I said blink the blue again. What is that? I don't know. I'm scared. I think it was a Halloween decoration. It looks like a... It looks like a baby like doing this. Me? I think it was a Halloween decoration. 
Holy. What Holy looks shit, like creepy, glowing, wide-set oh. eyes seem to appear out of the darkness, that is, is big. peering at Sam as he oh. stares back in terror. Whatever it is, so then just wide. seems to mm-hmm. disappear. And that's, that's not all saying, that like Sam has captured inside his haunted home. The creepy activity goo-goo-y even thing. starts to occur in the middle of the day. What? I'm not, like, pixelated. Yeah. Oh, there goes a the rocking horse. Oh my gosh, the camera's being insane. Yeah. Whoa, it's pixelating again. Yeah, it happens sometimes when you have crazy stuff happening. Like, my internet's been crazy in here today. A loud sound startles Sam, and when he turns around, a white translucent figure appears to push a rocking horse, causing it to rock slowly back and forth. Now, with all this collected and highly disturbing footage, of course Sam's TikTok following is undecided on whether to believe his story or just write it off as another elaborate TikTok hoax. So is it real supernatural activity or just some very good editing? Like As there. always, I leave that up to you to decide. <sighs> Neighborhood Watch. Sarah Marie and her husband Bobby are having an afternoon get-together with some friends at their home in Florida. <laughs> when suddenly they spot something very odd at the neighbor's house across the road. Oh, I've seen this one before. This one is creepy AF. Oh, did you see that? Something just ran across, and you'll see it. It'll keep going back and forth. I've seen this one before. Creepy. <laughs> see it? Yeah. See it did it again, and the dog's barking. Even the dog's like, "There's nobody wrong. There's nobody." There's something bad going on here. I don't even know they can be that visible. <laughs> A strange shadow can be seen quickly moving back and forth in Sarah's neighbor's home, freaking out everyone and even seeming to upset their two puppies. Sarah explains online that the home belongs to an older woman whose son, sadly, had passed away. Worried about the older woman's safety, Sarah calls her neighbor. But the woman says, um, I'm not even at home right now. There's nobody there. So who or what could Whatever this it is, be? it's moving really fast. I leave okay, it up so to you to decide. I have to pause this really quick because... This next creepy video went viral on. on TikTok, but here. it was originally recorded son. by... So you guys, okay, this totally reminds me of when we went up to do a paranormal investigation at Dylan Redwine's house. I remember him checking. Yeah, and um, there was nobody home because Mark was on the road. He was doing his trucking job. And Tat and Glow went over the cattle guard that goes into the yard. And me and Sadie just stood on the other side because it looked like inside the house, there was like a TV or something on it. It was like a bluish, greenish light. And then you could see this thing running back and forth. And it was like that Anubis looking thing. Except for its ears weren't as pronounced. So Anubis is like I'm the guy that takes you on the river of death and stuff yes. to the other side. But his ears weren't as big. It was a little shorter. And then um, Brian that same night said, he told me this like a week later. I'm like, why didn't you tell me that that night? 
Remember when I was out on the porch smoking and we heard that growl? Oh, yeah. That yeah. scared me so, so bad. Yeah. It just gave me the chills. I thought there was, like, a wolf or something. Or maybe Zoe, like, seeing a deer, but I'm just like, wait, I don't think Zoe's out here. No. Nope. It was just us. And wolves don't really go out here that much. We heard it, and then we looked at each other, and I'm like, did you hear that, too? And you said, yeah. And I was like, let's go inside. I think I'm done smoking right now. Um, but yeah, then I got scratched that same night. And then a couple days later, I got scratched yeah. again. That was the toilet flushing. Um, but yeah. So this thing was running back and forth. Like, did you see how fast it was running in front of that door? Like, this thing was doing the same thing in front of the windows. Really fast, back and forth. Like, a speed that nobody could really run in a house. Yeah. And um, then it followed me home. Then it scratched me. And Yeah insane insane in the membrane but yeah i just had to share that because that's what it reminded me of of seeing that through the window and then seeing that on that video i'm like flashbacks indonesian twitter continue. user gusta die huh i just realized that that kind of looks like a butterfly it does it's a um, the butterfly nebula see butterfly nebula yeah it's beautiful isn't it yeah all right let's continue all right twitter gross Goose explains on Twitter that he was flying from Surabaya, Indonesia to Bali and that he was the very first passenger to board the empty plane. As Goose is boarding, he records a video to send back to his wife. When he looks back at his footage, he spots something truly chilling. Someone or something that seems to be cloaked in black can be seen moving around in one of the seats. When Goose walks by the seats, there's no one there. Goose Dang's video has been watched over 14 million times, and many viewers believe that the strange figure in the video could be the spirit of a deceased passenger. She's losing her ear, but what do you it happens think? to me all the time. The pitter-patter of tiny feet. An anonymous TikTok user who is the mother of a newborn baby has shared only one video to her TikTok page. But the video shows something absolutely chilling. Oh, I've seen this one before. She hears laughing. Quit doing that, please. I can't remember what happened. I think things fly off the counter or something. Or out of the cupboard. I can't remember. I just I just saw a shadow. You did? Yeah, like by by her shadow. It couldn't have been her baby because it like went like super fast. It was like First, the eerie sound of someone what? laughing can be heard. The mother is immediately alarmed because she lives alone with her baby. She then hears the pattern of what sounds like small running footsteps. And that's when her home's backdoor motion detector goes off. She immediately fears that someone might be in the house. But in the end, she finds nothing and no one's there. What she heard and captured remains a mystery. 
Jim works at what he believes to be Number a haunted six. hospital in New Jersey. Jay Early one afternoon, a security camera in one of the hospital's hallways captures something very creepy during Jim's shift. Wait, I think it's a wheelchair. One moment. I'm trying to see. <laughs> 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 and like, a supply cart. Can you see rolling down the hallway on its like, own, freaking out the hospital like, staff nearby? Jim and his co-workers have no idea what could have moved the cart, but things are about to get even stranger. Another CCTV camera in the hospital's laundry room records something absolutely unnerving. Record it from here. Oh yeah, I've seen this one. Even stranger. They're like, somebody could be back there. I don't freaking think so. Think somebody's hiding back there? I don't think so. <laughs> no way. How would it move like that? No way. Exactly. Like, what the crap? You would have seen that when it turned because oh, there was I'm like gonna. this much space at the that one point. Like, how would somebody be this skinny? It's like yeah, it, it didn't want exactly. to see the front of it. You know, it's it yeah. funded so that he didn't have to look at it no more. Whoever's in that room. Oh my God. Yeah. Madeline, you didn't see. Come and look at the second one. Here comes the second one. No, the second one's moving now. Yeah. No way. Yeah, and it was Watch moving the like then towards the, the only off. space. So how would and the lady come and do that? Just... She don't know what to say. She was like, "Gremlins." Watch the second one. Any second. Gremlins <laughs> in the laundry room. It happens. Look. This does not happen. Look, the ghost. It's a ghost. Look, look at it. Who's spinning it? Who's spinning that? Who's spinning that? Who's doing laundry? Who's doing laundry? Who? They don't spin like that. Mine ain't bolted in my house. Mine don't come and walk around my living room. Look, Jesus, look that, and then one of them falls off. How did it come out like that? That was pushed out. I can't wait to show everybody. Just to use their space as efficiently as they can. Holy shit. No I'm just waiting for that one to fall. Yeah, same. Holy shnikes. There's a ghost here. No way. I'm the showing the ghost in the back. Oh, oh did you see? Oh, Somebody peeked in there like, uh-uh. Oh, the laundry room. Forget about it. The laundry, so was that a person or was that a ghost? They just start moving. They just start coming out oh, and moving and going in circles. Back, and there was a dark yeah. figure But it's crazy. I never went through like in my whole life. Yeah, there was. Heavy washers and dryers slide across the floor as if they weigh nothing, seemingly moved by some unseen force. Jim and his fellow hospital workers can't believe their eyes as they watch the CCTV monitor. Now, even I'm not sure just what's going on here. Could it be that the hospital is indeed haunted, like Jim says? Or just what could be spinning creepy. around multiple yeah. heavy washers all at the I same would time? I definitely say it's haunted because look, Let there's nobody behind it. Think. Yeah. Casey Dostert's TikTok page is completely devoted to sharing videos of his fishing body. and hunting trips in the Michigan outdoors, oh, which makes this yeah. next singular spooky video on his TikTok even They're more bizarre. Casey they explains that he saw an abandoned house in the woods a few times as a child, but he had never been able to find his way back there again later in life. That is until recently. It's already dark when Casey and his friend Ashton drive up to take a look at the house. It did not go well. Oh, just look at that. So, uh, I want to take everybody back here. I 
place I knew about when I was a kid. Mom, Haven't been able to find it since. Have to turn let me it off tell you, now. it's an eerie place. I got to show everybody this. Now that I found it again. Brought my buddy Ashton with me. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Thank you for that. But, uh. I'm going to sacrifice you to the ghosties. Moon. Oh, look at that moon. I get a bad feeling every time I come in here. Why'd you have to come Dude, here seriously? on a moon night? I don't know. Good man. <laughs> so we should be coming up on it here pretty quickly. Cheese and crackers. Oh, oh yeah, freaking logs sticking out there. That. I'm telling you, some bad yeah. stuff happened back here. I would not live in that house. Just seeing it, uh-uh. That's definitely haunted. What do you think? I'll go get... All right. I'll get, I gotta take care of show you get the blowtorch, Mom. Yeah, I'll go get the blowtorch. All right, you get that blowtorch, girl. Well, I can't really. Your fingers on my knees. No, I'm scared. Don't leave me. Don't leave me, Lily. Oh, look. A tire swing is moving. At first, I thought that was a giant eye. I was just Probably the wind. That's why none of the branches are moving. Really don't Probably the wind. Yeah. Dude, this is probably the strongest. This is bad stuff happening back here. I'm more way down than a heavy tire. Right? Yeah. Uh-uh, honey boo-boo child. Gotta tell you what. That ain't no win. Yeah, hold on. Casey, go back. Go back. Go back? Go back, Casey, go back. There was somebody standing in that window. Shut up. I seen something in the window, Casey. What? Go back. I want to see it. There was something in the window. Give me that light. Right. I missed it. Same. I was hey, looking at the chair. Over here, Ashton, on the side. Okay, turn off the light. There should be a. No, don't okay, turn off the light. I want to see. See, there's no wind whatsoever. Mom. What? Through the window when they were like walking out of no, the car, no. I saw like one little light, like an eye. Like an eye glowing. It was just like. What the crack? I wish they'd go back and show, like, in the window. Pretty sure Nuke will, because he's really good at covering stuff. But yeah. He said he saw somebody in the window. There's somebody standing right here, or a shadow or something standing here. Dude, is that blood yeah, on he saw something. Just... Could be. All right, come on. Well, want to check it out? It's probably a zipper on well, that mattress. The There's bill. probably a dead body inside the mattress. Ew. <laughs> People wish we did the blood. No, what the no, heck just happened? Go, 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 get out of here. I'm really scared. Oh, no. they, like, open the Someone door can be seen standing in the window of the oh. creepy old house. Oh, yeah, I see it. When they approach the yeah. building, a door slams shut and the friends just the get out of there. Yeah, they're like, we're Casey done. Casey explains we're that good. some, quote, bad stuff happened in the house in the 1970s, but he doesn't bad elaborate on the story. So just what did the guys catch on camera? Look at that. Is it real? Like, or is it all just an elaborate like, hoax? You decide. And Guardian like were, Angel. Like, white dress. Only a few months ago, TikTok user Tana Witt went through a devastating tragedy when her brother suddenly and without warning passed away. Aww. Tana's brother was incredibly close to her family, including her two-year-old daughter, Evelyn. One night, I Tana see. and her daughter are home alone when something happens that shocks Tana to her core. Quit messing with my $5 dollar store, New Year's. Tirara, hey, stop messing with my Tirara. <laughs>